may be seated. Well, good evening. It is a pleasure to be back again tonight to bring the Lord's Word to you. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And our Bible reading is just going to be verse number 1. 2 Corinthians 7 and the first verse. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Amen. Let's seek the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, as we come before you tonight, we come as people desiring what we've just sung that we would have a closer walk with you, our God. We lament the fact that we have to sing that stanza, Return, O Holy Dove, return. Because we know that it would have been we who veered off the pathway. And so we pray tonight as we consider this particular passage of Scripture that you would teach us what it means to perfect holiness in your fear. And so we ask again for the help of the Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know this is a congregation very familiar with the Shorter Catechism. When the Catechism goes through the individual questions about the law of God, what is required in each of the commandments and what is forbidden in each of the commandments, It gets to the end of that section, and it asks the question, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And the short answer to that question is no. But the Catechism gives us the answer, no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. The very fact that that answer exists in the Catechism and the fact that we would recite such a thing and it resonate in our heart that we know that it is true that we are not able to keep all the commandments of God and we do break all of the commandments of God in thought, word, and deed. And in fact, we do that on a daily basis should make us very disappointed. That should be a very sad fact to you, that that actually is the case. This verse in 2 Corinthians 7 tells us that as believers, and because of the motivation that we have from the promises of God that He has made to us as His dearly beloved people, we are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. We're to perfect holiness. It doesn't say to pursue holiness, which we are to do, but it says we are to perfect holiness. That word translated as perfect here 
in your Bible is a word that means to bring something to completion or to bring something to a finish. I'm going to make a very big statement, but the statement is this. It is a right attitude for a Christian to desire to be perfect. It is a right attitude for a Christian to desire to be perfect. One commentator said this. He said, No man is a friend of God who is satisfied and contented that he is not as holy as God is holy. You're not a friend of God, this commentator says. If you're satisfied and content that you are not as holy as God is holy. There's a lot there. Most of you I know already know something of the testimony of Robert Murray McShane. He grew up in Scotland, had a reputation of being a very worldly man. His father spoke of him that he was into all the pleasures of town. Uh, He would frequent the places that uh, his father thought he ought not to have frequented. And he was converted. His father prayed for his conversion, and Robert Murray McShane was converted. And a man who had a testimony of being very worldly, he died about 10 years after his conversion, and he had a reputation of being one of the most holy men in all of Scotland. And many of you are probably already familiar with one of his famous prayers, Make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Robert Murray McShane understood this concept of what it was to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Well, how holy is that? Well, I would say for myself, it's more holy than I am now. And probably the same for you. That prayer should be the desire of every Christian heart. You should long for a constant and a consistent holiness. This is what the Apostle Paul tells us. We are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. So I want to preach to you this evening on that subject of perfecting holiness. In the subject of perfecting holiness, I want you to see, first of all, the problem of sin. Look with me back at chapter 7 and verse 1. We see first the problem of of sin, because Paul says here that we need to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now, there's a problem that we have to deal with, and that problem is, is sin. Because you see, sin is, is filthiness. You know the verse, Isaiah 64 and verse 6, but we all are as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The best that we have to present to God in and of ourselves is just a collection of filthy rags in the sight of God. You remember in Zechariah chapter 3, when Zechariah is seeing this series of visions as, as the book of Zechariah opens, and he finally comes to that vision of um, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and you remember how Joshua was clothed. He was clothed in what Zechariah calls filthy garments as he stood before the angel. 
that word that is translated in the Old Testament as filthy is a word that gives us the idea of something that would be covered in vomit or worse. It is a word that describes for us the most grotesque of images imaginable. And that's the way the Bible describes sin. Now, your problem and mine is that most of us don't view our sins that way. Most of us don't view our sins as being as if it were vomit or worse in the sight of a holy God. We view our neighbor's sins to be that way, but not our own. Because we have a good reason for ours. They don't. Right? So theirs are gross, but mine are not quite so bad. But that's part of the problem of sin. Sin is filthiness. That's one of the ways the Bible describes it. But Paul makes perhaps a nuance of distinction, but he makes a distinction between what he calls here the filthiness of the flesh and the filthiness of the spirit. Well, what's the difference in those two? Most take this, and I think this makes all the sense in the world, the, the filthiness of the flesh are those more outward and visible sins. This would be something like lying, where, where you're caught in that lie, and it's obvious that you, you did wrong and you sinned. You, you didn't tell the truth. Being lazy or slothful, someone with that reputation that they don't work, they're just lazy, they're slothful. They're, they're at work and they're constantly on their phone doing their texting rather than you know, being engaged in the job that their boss has assigned to them to do. And, and that would be a, a sin of the flesh. That would be something obvious and outward and visible that you could see. When children are just blatantly disobedient to their parents and, and they don't clean their room, they don't do their dishes, they don't do their homework, they don't do their schoolwork, they don't, they don't obey their mom and dad, and it's an outward visible sin of the flesh. Committing adultery, being a thief, those, those outward visible things, the sins of the flesh. But then he also mentions the sin of the spirit. And in contrast to the outward and visible, more blatant sins that we might be aware of, these are the secret sins of the heart. These are those hidden sins that we have in our own mind, in our own heart, in our own affections that our neighbors don't know anything about. You may even hide it from your mom and dad. You may even hide it from your husband or from your wife. But it would be things like pride. A spiritual pride or a pride of place, a self-pride. You might be prideful and your neighbor not necessarily discern all the nuance of how deep and sinful that actually goes in your heart. Lust, envy, covetousness, these, these sins that are spiritual, inward, ones that we more easily can keep the lid on so that other people don't find out how bad we actually are. And you know, as I was thinking about that, the sins of the flesh and and the sins of the Spirit, the filthiness of the flesh and the filthiness of the Spirit. I thought, you know, we're, we're a pretty sanitized bunch in that I don't know all of you in this church. I know many of you. Many of you are, are new since I was a student here in the seminary and other times I've come to visit, but I don't know anybody in this congregation that's just a, a blatant out-and-out sinner. Like, everybody in town knows when your name is mentioned, oh yeah, he's you know, the town drunk. Nobody here is the town drunk. 
You know, nobody here is, is on that level of sin. And so I would presume to say that it's not the sins of the flesh that tend to be your problem, as I don't think they're so much mine either, but it would be those sins of the Spirit that for the vast majority of us would be our struggle. That prideful thinking, the fact that you actually do have a good reputation, the irony of pride. Pastor Kimbrough often quotes, I'm not sure where the quotation comes from, but he often quotes saying, pride is the sin that grows with the increase of other graces. So the more you find that you are getting victory in this area or that area, and the more holy you begin to perceive yourself to be, the more you perceive yourself to be getting victory over this sin or that sin, the more prideful you become that you're getting victory over sin. It's the subtle irony of, of pride. And pride would creep into the heart. Maybe the sin of envy. You look at the sex success of others. And you're jealous. Well, why'd he get a raise and I didn't get a raise? You, know, you even argue with the Lord. Lord, I've, I've tried to be so faithful. And why am I not getting promoted to that next thing? And why'd this person get promoted to that next thing and not me? Did I not, did I not deserve? I mean, I've been faithful. Do you not owe me? Worry, fear, those are secret sins of the flesh that plague so many. God has not given you a spirit of fear. To take up a spirit of fear is to, to take to yourself that doesn't, something that doesn't belong to you. It is, in essence, stealing because God has not given that to you. But you take fear and you take worry and you, you, you pet these like little kittens But yet God has told us in the scriptures to take all of our cares and to to cast them upon him because he cares for us. God's not given us that kind of spirit, but yet we we harbor that worry and, and fear and these secret sins of the heart in many ways can be far more filthy than the rest. The others are are known. These are secret and they grow and we take care of them. They're somewhat similar to those idols we were talking about this morning that the children of Israel were told to put away. Well, they didn't. They held on to these things. Well, if we are supposed to perfect holiness in the fear of God, then we have to come face to face with our own sinfulness. We have to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit and perfect holiness. And so sin is this great problem that we have to deal with if we're going to perfect holiness. But I want to move on to a second point for you this evening, and that is to look at the promises of God. We've seen the problem of sin. I want you to see the promises of God. And that's how Paul starts the verse, does he not? He says to these Corinthian believers, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, well then here's what we have to do. We have to cleanse ourselves, etc. But what are these promises that he's speaking about? I think we need to go back in our Bibles, back up to chapter 6. And just to catch a little bit of the context in verse 14, he tells us not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 
And he begins to ask these rhetorical questions. What fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? And the answer to that's pretty obvious. It doesn't have any fellowship together. And what communion hath light with darkness? Again, a pretty obvious answer. It doesn't have communion together. It's an obvious no for that. And another one, what concord hath Christ with Belial? Well, that's obviously no. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Again, no. Verse 16, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? None. And so now he goes into some explanations. You are the temple of the living God, as God hath said. And here are the promises. I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Well, there are your promises. And, and so he, from there he says, having therefore these promises. Well, these are the promises. And it really boils down to three of them. The first one being that God has promised to dwell with you. This is the promise of the Lord dwelling with his people. This is more than just the fact that God is omnipresent. God is, God is everywhere and God, God dwells among us all in that sense that God is omnipresent. But this is something different than that. This is something that's very special. He says back in chapter 6 and verse 16, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a very special, a very unique relationship that God has with those that are his, different than that relationship he would have with the rest of humanity. You know, when God in the Old Testament was dwelling with Israel, it wasn't that he was there and ignorant of everything else that was going on. He knew exactly what was going on among the Philistines. He knew exactly what was going on with all the, you know, all the ites, the, the Jebusites and the Havites and you know, he knew everything that was going on with them too, and, and, and he kept an eye on that, and he, he judged that, and he sent Israel to judge that. And he knew in Canaan when, when their iniquity was, was full. And so God knew, but there was a special relationship he had with his own people. He dwelt with them. Even in the wilderness, it was quite literal. We, we use that term, the Shekinah glory. You know, the, the Ark of the Covenant, and God dwelt between the cherubims. And we, we talk about the Shekinah glory. You may or may not know this, but that word Shekinah is just a Hebrew word transliterated out, but it's the word for dwelling. It's the dwelling glory of God. He, he literally was among his people. He was there with them. His presence was made known. And God knew what was going on with them all. God was angry with the wicked. God punished the wicked. God opposed those that opposed him. But God had a very special relationship with his people. And this is what Paul speaks of back in verse number 16. You're the temple of the living God. And God dwells in you. God is with you. And having that promise, perfect holiness in the fear of God. Because just as God was with Israel and he dwelt among them 
And he knew everything that was going on with them. The same is true for you and the same is true for me. God dwells among us. God dwells in us by his spirit. And he knows every thought of your mind. He knows every time you as a child roll your eyes at your parents and think your parents are dumb or stupid or whatever. You're not supposed to say the word stupid from the pulpit. I'm sorry. But you know what I'm saying. You know, God knows all that is going on in your mind. He knows when you're angry at your spouse. He knows when you're angry at your boss. He knows all the feelings of your heart. He knows all those things. Perhaps the negative side of it, but the positive side of that truth is that God dwells with us. He walks with us. He has promised to be our God, and we are his people. And there's a great joy and there's a great comfort in that. There's a great warning in it, but it's a great comfort and a great joy as well. And based on that promise, perfect holiness in the fear of God. And then verse 17 gives us a second promise, and that is the promise that God will receive you. He says in verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Leaving the place that we've always known can be a very scary and and fearful thing, leaving everything behind. Before you were converted, sin was what you knew. You dwelt among sin, you were in sin, and you leave that, you come out from among that. Well, that can be, that can be scary. Because you don't know what's on the other side, you don't know what the future holds. But God said, no, you, you come out from among that uncleanness, And I am going to receive you to myself. I am going to take care of you. I'm going to take special care of you. I'm going to receive you. And here the Lord promises promises us that when we forsake sin, God will receive us to himself in a special way, unlike the way he's received us previous to that. He will draw us to himself And then verse 18 gives us the third promise, and that is God has promised to be a father unto you. And so as a loving father, he's going to provide everything that you need. I don't think we can get away from verse 18 without bringing in something of the concept of adoption. The language here is is that of adoption, being officially made part of the family of God. You're not an orphan any longer. You're not an outsider. It's not that you don't belong. No, you belong now. You belong to God. He is your Father. He's received you. He dwells among you. And all these promises all put together is part of the main motivation that the Apostle Paul gives for us perfecting holiness in the fear of God based on these promises And this is how Paul begins the verse. Having, therefore, these promises, this is what we do. This is how we go forward. And so we see the problem of sin. We see the promises of God. But I want to show you, lastly, this evening, the pursuit of the Christian. The pursuit of the Christian. And it's clear in the text here. And it gets down, actually, to our own personal responsibility. I was mentioning that this morning from the text in Joshua 24, Choose you this day whom you will serve. And we tend to shy away from that idea of personal responsibility because, you know, we're Calvinists, we believe in the sovereignty of God, and God has ordained all things. But you can't get away from the biblical truth of 
the fact that we have personal responsibility in the Christian walk. And so when we consider the pursuit of the Christian here, we see the command that Paul has given to us. First of all, let us cleanse ourselves from that problem of sin that we've already talked about, but let us cleanse ourselves. That's the first pursuit that we have. There is no doubt at all, and we can prove from Scripture in multiple places, that in your sanctification, God is doing a work of cleansing you. He which hath begun a good work will continue that work. He will bring that work to completion. He will perfect that work. It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And we can multiply verses along this line. We could make reference to the catechism that sanctification is the work of God's free grace. We're renewed in the inner man. And it's day by day we are enabled to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. We're left to ourselves and it's obviously the, the work of God's Spirit that works in us to sanctify us, to cleanse us. But yet I want you to pay very careful attention to the text. The text does not say, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let God cleanse you. It doesn't say that. Now, does God cleanse the believer? Of course. Absolutely, he does. But the emphasis here is on that aspect of, again, personal responsibility. And the Bible does emphasize both of those things. The Bible does emphasize that the Lord by his Spirit will work in you to cleanse you. But it also says that you must cleanse yourself. I know almost everybody here, I hope you're a fan of Patch the Pirate. I hope you understand Patch the Pirate's not just for kids. I love Patch the Pirate. We listen to Patch the Pirate on road trips all the time. But there's one, Patch the Pirate Goes West. Many of you will know the story. One of the characters is named Bucky. And Bucky, at one point in the story, gets caught up with a wrong crowd. And there are these two cattle rustlers that are trying to get Bucky to go astray. Trying to get Bucky to be disrespectful to his, to his maw. And Cousin Cactus, Cousin Cactus Patch... He gives Bucky some good advice. He tells Bucky, just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And it's a pivotal point in the story. But you make choices every day. You make choices every day to please God or to please self. This morning, we're obviously some overlap in what we were looking at this morning. This morning was, choose you this day whom you will serve. Well, every day you make a choice. There is a sense in which every time your feet hit the floor in the morning, when you get out of your bed, you've got a choice. You, you young people, when, when you're there with your math book, you've got a choice. Am I going to be diligent in my schoolwork? And whatsoever my hand finds to do, I'm going to do it with all of my might? Or you're going to just kind of scribble down some numbers and yeah, who cares? Or 
I don't want to give away any secrets, but if you're homeschooled, you go and you peek in the back of the book, right? You use your Saxon math, right? They had a, at least all the odd numbers, so you, you at least got 50% on your assignment, right? But you've got a choice. Are you going to do right or do wrong? Are you, are you going to choose to please God or are you going to choose to please self? There's a sense in which what we're called here is to take an inventory of what we're up to. Are we up to pleasing self or are we up to pleasing the Lord? And so having these promises, here is the pursuit that the Christian is supposed to be on. He's supposed to be on this pursuit of cleansing himself. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be cleansing yourself from all that filthiness of the flesh and filthiness of the spirit that we were talking about earlier. And the emphasis here is not for you to wait on God to cleanse you. Sanctification is not a zap from heaven. Sanctification is a cooperation. I'll throw you some big fancy theological words, but in theology we talk about things that are synergistic and monergistic. Your justification is monergistic. There's one worker. God alone justifies. Your regeneration, monergistic. Justification, I mentioned monergistic. Your conversion, you believe. You have to exercise faith. But that faith is a gift of God. But when we come to our sanctification, it's clear that that's a synergistic work. Even pay attention to the words of the catechism. I know Mr. Farr has probably pointed this out to you many, many times as I have in Winston-Salem. Justification, the act of God's free grace. Adoption, the act of God's free grace. Sanctification, the work of God's free grace. Why the change? Why does it not say act again? The act of God's free grace, the act of God's free grace. Now, the work of God's free grace. Because in your sanctification, you are enabled day by day to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Of course, left to yourself, all by yourself, you can't sanctify yourself. But this text makes it abundantly clear you're not by yourself. Because remember the promises. God has promised to dwell with you. He's promised to receive you. He's promised to be a father unto you. You're not alone. Even in the text, even if we didn't go back and look at actually what the promises are, Having therefore these promises, well, what promises? I don't know, but I'm dearly beloved. And so these promises are to one that God has taken care of. God loves you. God wants you to serve him, to follow him, to be sanctified, to cleanse yourself of these filthy sins. But then the second pursuit is at the end of the text and really the subject of what we're dealing with here, and that is perfecting holiness. That should be the Christian's pursuit, to cleanse yourself and to perfect holiness. I already mentioned that this word means to bring something to completion, to bring something to a finish. I'm going to make a big statement, controversial statement, but here you go. Sinless perfectionism is your goal. Now that phrase is going to trigger... Many, when when I say that phrase, sinless perfectionism. Sinless perfectionism is not what the Bible teaches. 
But yet I just told you that sinless perfectionism is your goal. Sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I don't think I am. While sinless perfectionism might not be attainable in this life, it does not negate the fact that it is the goal of the Christian. What else does Paul mean when he tells you to perfect holiness? What does he mean when he tells you to bring holiness to completion? This is weird, but is he telling you just go ahead and die now so you can be glorified? No. That's not what he means. He means that you are to aim at perfect holiness. Let me read you, please bear with me, this is not that long, but let me read you what one commentator said that I think sums this up, I think better than I can say it. He says, in salvation, holiness has been commenced in the heart, and the exhortation of the apostle is that they should make every effort that it might be complete in all its parts. He does not say that the work of perfection has ever been accomplished, nor does he say that it's not been. He only urges the obligation to make an effort to be entirely holy. It is an obligation which results from the nature of the law of God and his unchangeable claims on the soul. The fact that no one has been perfect does not relax the claim. The fact that no one will be perfect in this life does not weaken the obligation. It proves only the deep and dreadful depravity of the human heart and should humble us under the stubbornness of guilt. He says the fact that no one has ever attained perfect holiness does not remove the fact that that is what God has required of you to perfect holiness in the fear of God. The fear of God is another motivating factor. We have all these promises, but we perfect holiness in the fear of God. The fear of God is a very familiar topic in Scripture. It simply means, a very easy definition for that, it simply means to live in the awareness of God. The fact that God sees all, the fact that God knows all, He knows everything in the mind, everything in the heart, all the emotions, all the desires, all the secrets. An immature manifestation of that fear is just a fear of always being punished, as if God is somehow in heaven with some giant stick going to beat you over the head every time you mess up. That's not really a, a, a mature aspect of the fear of God, but it would be more of a, a deep dread of doing anything that's going to hurt or mar this relationship. It's a fear that's motivated by a love for God. I want to please God. I want to obey Him in every way that I can obey Him. I want to humble myself before Him. I want to love what He loves, and I want to do what He wants me to do because I love Him, and I don't want anything to interfere with that relationship that I have with him because I know he loves me. And so I, I fear the Lord. And that mature fear is a humble reverence for God and, and a desire to see his glory advanced in your own heart and in the world. That's what you want. And so here's the pursuit of every Christian to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit 
And the second pursuit is to perfect holiness in the fear of God. I got a big problem because we can't do that. I told you it's the goal. I told you it's still the obligation of every believer. And it is what we are to pursue. But if we can just take a step back from this just for a moment and remind ourselves of the great gospel truth of the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I sought to mention and bring home this point just a little bit this morning. But Jesus Christ has perfectly obeyed the law of God. Jesus Christ is the only one that has perfected holiness in the fear of God. He, he, he perfected holiness in, in every way that it can be. He fulfilled all righteousness. He was tempted in all points like as you are, yet without any sin at all. No sin. In the wilderness, there with Satan, he was tempted in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And he didn't fall at any of it. And all through his earthly ministry, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these lawyers come and try as they may to get him to, to trip up and stumble over his words or to say this wrong thing or that wrong thing or they ask him some convoluted question about the law. And he, he, never, he never sinned. He perfectly loved God. He, he never substituted anything for God. He never made a graven image whether literal or in his mind. He never took God's name in vain. He was perfect in keeping the Sabbath day every day of his life. He honored his father and mother. All those that were in authority, he rendered to them the honor that was due. He never hated his brother. He rendered perfect love to his neighbor. He didn't steal. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't bear a false witness. He didn't covet he obeyed all those things. Where the catechism tells us that we daily break those laws in thought, word, and deed, Christ never did any of that. He perfected holiness. And he did it for you, and he did it for me. I remember when I was growing up, I mentioned this morning I was saved when I was seven was in a conservative Southern Baptist church all through my elementary and junior high, high school days. And I remember the preacher talking about the fact that Jesus was sinless. And that made sense to me. I mean, he's God in the flesh, knew no sin, wonderful. And I, under, I understood that just from the concept that Jesus never sinned. I sinned, Jesus never sinned. But I really never understood why that was so important. I never really got the point of that. What difference did it make? That sounds crass to say it that way, but I didn't understand what difference it made. Until I came to this church and learned of imputed righteousness. I had heard the term vicarious atonement I don't know how many times. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for your sins. And I understood that. I was a believer. I was a Christian. And I understood what that meant. Jesus died in my place, a vicarious atonement. 
But I began to understand the importance of a vicarious life. Jesus not only died for you, he lived for you. And for 33 years or so, he lived for you. And he never disobeyed his parents. He never said an unkind word. He never had a sideways thought about anything or anybody. Perfectly rendering obedience to the law of God. On your behalf, vicariously for you, and rendered that perfect obedience and perfected holiness in the fear of God. And if you're saved tonight, that perfect righteousness, that perfect obedience is considered by the God of heaven to be yours. It's imputed to you by faith alone. Received by faith alone. And so positionally, in Christ, you've already done this text. Positionally, in Christ, you've perfected holiness in the fear of God, as have I. I'm in Christ. But yet there's still the day by day. There's still the laying ourselves on the altar day by day. There's still what I referenced the words of Christ this morning. You cannot serve God and mammon. There still is the choose you this day whom you will serve. There still is the rubber meets the road of life where there's just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. Positionally in Christ, what more can you want? But yet gospel holiness looks like something in the life. It plays out in attitudes and responses day by day. It plays out in business dealings and and decisions and work ethic and, and everything else day by day. Christian holiness looks like something that is real. And this is what Paul is calling us to here in these verses. Having all these promises of God dwelling with us, God receiving us, God being our Father, loving us, and us being His dearly beloved, then here's the pursuit of every Christian. Cleanse yourself and perfect holiness. Aim at always obeying God. May the Lord work in our hearts. This is not something we do alone. But as the Catechism reminds us, we are enabled by His Spirit day by day, to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you this evening for the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ has not only died for us, but he's also lived for us. And he has perfected holiness on our behalf. But we pray as we live in this world day by day that you would give us a desire to be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. 
that as Paul reminds us so many places in the scriptures that we would put off all of those filthy sins and that we would put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, all those Christian graces and that we would seek to walk with you day by day. So we pray for your help and at the same time we thank you that you have promised help as we travel this pilgrim pathway. We pray for ourselves as we leave this place this evening. We face many difficulties in the week that's before us. We have different responsibilities, different trials, different concerns, and different needs in our homes and in our families and in our work. And we pray that in this week to come that we would know your help and your blessing. We pray for your provision in all things. We pray that you would make us bold for Christ. We pray that you would make us a faithful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those we come in contact with. And we ask all these things and we thank you for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.